pretty quickly a couple months ago hit a curve and if you're a race car driver you know that like a curve is when you got to slow down you got to watch your instruments you got to watch where you are on the track you have to be a lot more careful about how you drive but race car drivers also know that races are won in the curve they're won by knowing how and when to accelerate before the curve is over so you are the first and fastest to hit the straightaway Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Matt Hines, and Matt's the president of Hines Marketing and host of his own podcast, the Sales Pipeline Radio. And Matt's joining me today on Sales Enablement, episode 798, to have a conversation about what's next for B2B sales. Matt and I are going to talk about how, as the world around us has changed, what he would do if he were in charge, what changes he would make to how we structure and execute B2B sales. We're also going to be checking into a topic Matt and I first spoke about four years ago on this show, or when it was called Accelerate with Andy Paul. And on that episode, I asked Matt about the seven reasons why BDRs and SDRs aren't making quota. And that was from a chapter in his book, Full Funnel Marketing. So in this conversation, Matt and I talk about What's progress been made on that front, if any, on addressing those seven reasons why BDRs, SDRs don't make quota over the last four years? And we'll also dig into a topic that's on the top of a lot of sales leaders' minds these days. What type of future should they be planning for? So all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Matt, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would also give us your feedback about how we're doing and, and you can do that in the form of a review. I'd really appreciate it. So thank you. And if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, that's linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Matt Hines, welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been too long. I mean, you were early in the show, you hit two or three times pretty quickly, and then it's it's been a while. So we'll have to make up for lost time. So where are you? Sheltering in place. We are sheltering in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Uh, so my wife, three kids and I, we live in Kirkland, Washington, which is yeah, without traffic, about 20, 25 minutes outside of Seattle. And, um, you know, we're, we're just blessed. We've got, you know, we've got our health. We're all safe. Uh, we got plenty of toilet paper to last for a little while. Um, you know, as we were joking earlier, I, I am a I am a proud bald man. So uh, I've got razors for days to take care of my my hair maintenance needs. So I'm in good shape. So Kirkland. So that's the home to Costco, right? It is. It is like the very first Costco is just down the hills. The one we go to. Yeah. So I remember making sales calls on them, uh, putting our, getting a product placed in the Costco stores, but, um, it seems like you should have access, easy access to toilet paper in bulk from Costco. <laughs> I, I think we all get our toilet paper from like three mills in Wisconsin is what I'm guessing. And it's not the easiest thing to do inventory on. So, um, yeah, we're not running out of toilet paper anytime soon as long as those, as long as they no. can. Yeah, I was walking through the the storage units in this high rise that we live in here in San Diego. And, and uh, yeah, they're just cages or and then looked in and this one guy i think one couple guy whatever yeah maybe 200 rolls of toilet paper oh, stocked geez. up in there it's like two of the biggest containers ever packages that i've ever seen it's like dude it's not that hard to get well maybe he lives like way out in the mountains and like coming into town's a really big deal and so you know like he grows his own food he's got <laughs> his own water source 
Like he he's self-sustainable except the That's toilet right. paper. Yeah, he's a survivalist. Like on yeah. everything except toilet paper. Yeah. Everything except for toilet paper. And if you're gonna buy that much toilet paper, like it's worth having a Costco subscription you know, subscription <laughs> for the two times a year you drive down, you get your toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we sort of missed that. We've been in New York for or had been in New York for most of the shutdown and there's no convenient Costco, but even if there were, living in a small New York City apartment, there's no place to store it. So <laughs> just become your furniture. Yeah. Well, it could have been. Yeah. Our, so we were making more frequent trips. So there was you know, easy access. So it wasn't, wasn't a problem. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in your mind, I, just, I, I love asking this question to people. It's, so what have, what have you learned about yourself during the shutdown? Uh, what have I learned? I, I've learned that um, I really don't need to travel as much as I have. Um, that, that I miss seeing people in person that I'm, that I definitely want to get back to travel back to seeing people in person and shaking people's hands, hopefully someday, but at least seeing the, seeing the whites of their eyes in person. But I, um, you know, I, I, I've got three kids in elementary school and I like spending time with them. And last year I did way too much business travel. Mm-hmm. You know, we're now almost halfway through the year and, Obviously, my business travel is significantly down. And, you know, business isn't awesome, but it's good. So, I, you know, I can do this without yeah. being on the road as much. And I, you know, I think that, you know, that we some people are saying they're lamenting the fact that we may not go back to, you know, life, you know, as our previous normal. I'm like, I can't. I'm glad. I'm really glad that, you know, for many reasons that there was this opportunity. Like, I don't, I'm not happy that people, you know, have lost their lives and that this has been such a, you know, painful situation for a lot of people. But the downshift we've been forced to do has, I think, forced a lot of us to see a different way of doing things and a different set of priorities that I think will make us better. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting you bring that up about travel because I think we all have to sort of assess our priorities, and this is a perfect time to do it, right? Because we feel some anxiety about threats to the health and welfare and safety of, of your family and yourself. But yeah, I started my sales consulting business in order to stop traveling as much. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was traveling 300,000, 400,000 miles a year, international business and missed a birthday, one of my daughter's birthdays and just said, yeah, that's not going to happen again. And yeah, I would do willingly for a few years while the kids were still in school was became the dad that didn't miss a game, didn't miss a, a recital, didn't miss a, kids were big in the theater didn't miss a show uh, and yeah may have sacrificed something for a short period of time but that was okay yeah you know I, i've never missed a birthday uh, obviously never missed sort of a major holiday with the family but what i miss is just tuesday you know like the random normal mm-hmm. days when you can make dinner and you can have conversations and things you know little things go wrong at school and you can be here for your kids and i can be here to be a, an active member of the family and um and i realize look i mean like i have a job that's going to take me out of town occasionally but i can i'm going to be a lot more choosy about that i'm going to be a lot more i'm going to be a lot pickier there's going to be a higher bar and it is like you said it's one of the benefits of working for myself um that you know, there's always a downside to not going to something, right? But instead of the fear of missing out, I've really tried to embrace the joy of missing out. <laughs> like if I, <laughs> if there's some better reason to stay at home, then I've chosen the best option. And yes, I might be missing something, but whatever I'm missing based on that choice is not as important as what I've chosen to stay home for. So I, 
You know, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, think, I, I feel very lucky that I have that opportunity, that I have that choice with what I do, and I feel very lucky that I have kind of come across it at this stage in 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 my life because I know a lot of people that have done it done that later and either have lost their family or almost lost their family and wish they had that time back. Yeah. Well, I think that they even talk it, but it goes to the other extreme too. Is you know talk to some of the peers that we have that that are have their own companies and so on who are you know sort of celebrating the fact they spend three hundred days a year on the road and it's like more power to them. That just you know for me that that was never going to work. I wasn't wasn't that motivated. I guess to spend three hundred days a year on the road. Yeah. So, um, well, sort of continue with that theme is is okay. So. I don't think we're the only ones that are valuing, you know, having more time being off the road. I, I did travel last week for the first time in 90 days. Uh, my wife and I flew back from New York to, to San Diego and I was, I, was, I was laughing and my wife was sort of looking at me as I was sort of paralyzed in the middle of the floor because packing used to be second nature, right? Where everything <laughs> went in my backpack and yeah. what I needed to put in the suitcase. I'm sitting there like, well, I'm sort of lost. <laughs> I don't know what, what to do. And the muscle memory was gone. I think that's going to, hopefully, I think for a lot of people, we have the opportunity to be more efficient about how we conduct business. I think we've learned lessons that that perhaps it took this to teach us. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we're learning things that we like and don't like about this situation, right? I think, um, you know, I think we were all doing Zoom meetings for a long time and I still do way more than I used to. But more mm-hmm. often now, I just say, hey, let's just talk. Right. Let's just get on the phone. And I think sometimes people appreciate having the break from having to stare at a webcam for a half an hour. Um, but I, I do more of if I can do that and if I can string those together, I'll either do that from our front porch or I'll go for a walk and I'll and I'll do business and make phone calls while I'm walking. And so trying to find those ways to, you know, stay active, to get up from my chair, to stay busy, but focus on the right things and do it, you know, with a little better control of if not time, at least place. Um, it matters. And so, you know, I also think a lot of people have had to got to be successful. People have had to got to get a lot more effective at balancing work and life. Like I'm sitting here in my basement, basically, I don't have an office at home. I just have a corner of our basement. Um, and so with my family and my wife and I, we had to sort of make up rules where if the door is closed to upstairs, that means I'm on something. I, unless it's an emergency, try not to come down. Um, but then I also like at some point need to shut it off. Even right. though my workspace is just downstairs, I still need to shut it off so I can spend that time with my family. And in some cases, just so I can put my own oxygen mask on first and give myself a break and prioritize yeah. my own well-being with whatever that means I'm doing. Um, so I, and I'm hoping that we can all take for those of us, that have, for those that have developed that level of discipline, we can take that back into whatever the new normal is and prioritize that balance, however you define what that is for you. Well, I think this whole idea of getting on the phone is really a good one. There was there was a um, an article came out a few weeks ago in the New York Times about research preliminary research that's been done on sort of the efficacy of uh, video calls versus phone calls, and you know the early findings or the findings of this early research is that that actually you're more effective picking up verbal cues from the people you talk to on the phone versus over video. And that there's a lot of smoothing that goes on through the encryption and and that you actually miss some of these things because you're sort of distracted by looking at yourself, you know, which you spend 30% of the time doing, at least looking at yourself in the, the window on Zoom. or And it was just sort of fascinating to say, is, oh, gosh, if you start stack ranking 
effective forms of communication that actually, you know, in person, the best, but phone actually perhaps is more effective than Zoom. I think it can be. Uh, I, you know, I think the, the, the downside is you run the risk of people multitasking. One of the things I like about Zoom is that, you know, you're, you can tell where someone's eyes are. And, you know, sometimes people are like reading something you sent them or checking out a reference that you may have mentioned. Um, but I, and I, so I think that Zoom is the best we can do right now of approximating being in the room and having someone's attention. But I think that we have to treat because of that, we have to treat it as kind of sacred. We can't take every meeting and make it an in-person meeting because you wouldn't do that without Zoom. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because you need to talk to someone at the office doesn't mean it needs to be a Zoom meeting. It could be a phone call. It could be an email. So I, I think, you know, now and moving forward, we have to get smarter about what channel we use and why we use it. And it's part of how we make ourselves more efficient, but also how we respect the other person's time, especially if that's a buyer and you understand, you know, their communication and work habits. That's a really great point. That's a really great point. I haven't really given much thought to that as in terms of varying the the channels that you use. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, talk about a channel. It's so in-person is one channel, and, and field sales has certainly you know, been impacted by, by the, the shutdown. Is, do you think field sales is going back? I mean, what's your take on what the mix will be? I, I mean, my take is that, that, to the point you just sort of made, is they have to be more become more efficient. So we're going to see more hybrid uh, sales models where they don't give up the going in person, but they have to be more selective and judicious about deciding to make that investment and taking some of the customer's time. I would agree with you. I think that's started to happen already in that, you know, a lot of companies where you used to maybe sort of call on a customer, maybe now you have just done it via phone, via video conference, via, you know, even like a Zoom meeting, right? And I think that it's not just because many selling organizations are seeing that as a more efficient way of selling, but I think it's also being precipitated by buyer preference. You know, buyers don't necessarily want someone doing a dog and pony in their office all the time, especially if it's not for that big of a deal purchase mm-hmm. for them, right? I mean, that's where I think like both sides are going to look at these really big considered purchases and decide if it's worth getting together. And in some cases, it very much will be. And in other cases, you may still prioritize it when you have those industry gatherings or user conferences. And I think, you know, the, the big national global events where people have to get on airplanes are going to take longer to come back. They will come back for mm-hmm. sure, but they may take a couple of years to come back. Getting on an airplane for some people is different than getting in a car. So doing regional events might come back quicker, but if you can create efficiency for the buyers to get to spend time with each other, that means you've also created efficiency for sellers to engage multiple buyers at once, and they will certainly prioritize getting out of their seats, out of their office, out of their home office, and going and doing that. But I think just like our communication channels we talked about before, I think we will see a greater efficiency, a greater two-way efficiency of selling channel that will accelerate the move towards virtual sort of distance uh, phone-based selling that we saw even before the pandemic. Yeah, and you just have to use that in-person, I said, use it. Wisely use it judiciously. I mean, I have had this conversation with with VPs of sales and CEOs, and I, you know, harken back to not to date myself unnecessarily, but days, but when I was selling a lot of international business and spending a lot of time on the road overseas before email, you know, before a lot of these communication channels existed, is we just couldn't afford to go that often. Right. It's, it's, you just couldn't go for every touch as you had to really reserve it for the ones that were going to make a difference. 
in the outcome for you right. and, and the buyer. But then it was indispensable. You had to do it. And you'd be foolish if you didn't do it. And I think that's funny. Is I think a lot of companies and sales teams, it's like they resisted all costs doing the in-person when really what they should say is, yeah, we don't need to do it all the time. But there are times when we really should do it, and they don't. And then the other side, you got field teams that are out too often where they could really reserve it for the times that really matters. You just got to do the math. You know, I mean, like, I would prefer, look, I mean, if it's really up to me, I would prefer to have every prospect buy through an e-commerce tool. <laughs> just here's my content. Here's my proposal. Just you just buy and then I'll deliver it once it's done. Right. If I really want, if I, the seller, want to drive the most efficient channel, I should just do that. That's ridiculous. Why is that ridiculous? Because people need oftentimes more conversation than that. They need more managed, a managed process where it's the benefit to the buyer, not just as a seller to do that. Okay. You're willing to do that over the phone versus someone doing e-commerce because it's worth it for you to pay someone on the phone to have that conversation to get that deal across the line. Same math applies to whether you're willing to get in an airplane. And that's why I'm saying like, you know, there's, you know, I, I think in too often in companies, like we focus so much on getting the logo and I'm a field sales guy, so I got to get out there and it's good important to get in front of someone. Well, what's that deal worth to you? And is it worth going that far? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it's going to be, I think, you know, it's even and in good markets when companies are doing well, they can get more efficient, more inefficient at what they do and which channels they use. I think we're going to see companies as we rebound from this pandemic, as we get back to market, show the way to a better segmented selling strategy based on the ROI of channel and customer lifetime value. And to the point, extending a point I think you're making is just also being practical, right? I mean, so I couldn't consulting with this, this startup a long time ago, and it, they had a product that could be sold anywhere, and they were laying out this process of you know, how are they going to address these various segments and and I said well have you ever thought just about just selling to the companies that are located within 25 miles of your office to start with <laughs> and they hadn't really thought about that they had the, the grand plans to go spread out across the country and and try to sell and it's like yeah there were enough prospects initially for what they needed within you know half a day's drive that they turned their focus to that and it was the perfect stepping stone for them to get the experience they needed, the sales chops, if you will, develop for their, their product. And then they expanded beyond that. It was very practical. Yeah. 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 And I think that there's, there's practical and then there's, I guess what you might call speculative. And I think it depends a little bit, you know, what stage of the business you're in. Like if you're, if you're a venture back company and you're looking for your next round of funding and you're kind of in that, trying to confirm the product market fit, the amount you're willing to spend to acquire a customer may go up, right? So you may just get the logos to prove the concept, to prove that people will buy this. You might be willing to put more time in, which means you'll go see more customers. But once you get that validation, once you move from being a venture-backed company to, you know, for instance, a, ven- a, a private equity-backed company, the goal of acquisition is no longer logos. The goal of acquisition is to maintain a certain yeah, profit mm-hmm. margin as you do it. So now all of a sudden you have to play that efficiency card and really dial it in. So, you know, I guess, you know, some of this is sort of being just a, is efficiency. Some of this is also being really clear and knowing what stage you're at in your business. 
so to know what you know which of them you're like you're likely to follow you may you may explicitly not want to follow the most efficient plan if you need to get x number of logos on board by y date so you can close the the c round and keep yourself going yeah so sort of following up on that is is if you were you know cro or you know vp of sales for a company right now and i mean what what future would you be planning for Right. I mean, it's, and I think this is a question I get asked a lot is, is yeah, what are, what are, what's the target we're aiming for? I'm interested in your opinion on that. What's the environment going to be like? It's a good question. I mean, I, I hate to say it depends, but I guess it depends on the nature of the, of the market that you're in. Uh, I think we're already seeing evidence of a pretty quick rebound for a lot of B2B markets, you know, um, you know, uh, cloud computing, software yep. as a service, um, a lot of B2B industries that are, that are you know software and cloud based. Um, there wasn't really a slowdown as much as there was just a cautious pumping the brakes from a cash perspective. And so now that we're seeing the market come back, now that we're seeing markets reopen, now that we're seeing that there might be a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel, many of those companies are slowly getting back to business as usual. Slowly meaning in the next weeks and months versus quarters and years. Now, you know, if you're B two B in the you know transportation logistics space in the entertainment space in you know trade shows it might be a bit longer before things start to look like they did at the beginning of q1 um but i here's what i do know i think that as you look at your industry as you look at your marketplace it's important that you are not the last to accelerate you know if you're if you know over the last several years if you're thinking about this as a car race like we've been in a straightaway when you're in a straightaway you just you just hit the gas right you just go 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 we pretty quickly a couple months ago hit a curve and if you're a race car driver you know that like a curve is when you got to slow down you got to watch your instruments you got to watch where you are on the track you just you have to be a lot more careful about how you drive but race car drivers also know that races are won in the curve they're won by knowing how and when to accelerate before the curve is over so you are the first and fastest to hit the straightaway and there's a level of risk involved in figuring out what that, when that time is. And there's a level of experience that goes along with knowing when that time is. But this, when you're at the, towards the end of a curve, that is, this is a time that creates separation for companies that are doing the math and the calculus to figure out how and when to do that. And so, again, different for different businesses and different industries. But I think it's really important for companies to look at that. And if you're a marketing leader, if you're a, you're, if you're a CRO or a VP of sales, Figure out what that plan is now because you don't know. I mean, it could be tomorrow. It could be next month. It could be next week when your CFO says, now is the time. Let's accelerate through the curve. That is not the time to build your plan. Have the plan now so that when they give you the green light, it is go time. And so for VP of sales, what would that plan look like? Well, I think it's, you know, we were just talking about it, right? It was knowing, okay, like, here's how we went to market before. Here's how we separated our field market, our field sales team, our inside sales team. Here's how we manage different stages of the buying process. Here's the type of customers we were willing to go meet with in person versus now we're doing through Zoom. What is that going to look like now? And some of that might include just thinking about what's efficient for you, thinking about what you your team is willing to do, what you have learned about how well they can sell over the next couple months, but also understanding what your customers are willing to do. You may be willing to get on a plane and go see someone, but your customer may not be ready right. to do that yet. So I think there's a little bit of asking and understanding the buyer side to develop that plan. And look, base laid plans don't survive first contact with the right. battlefield anyway. Right. So whatever you develop now, you're going to make adjustments with as you execute. But I think by taking what you knew, 
before this, taking what you have learned in terms of how your team is selling over the last couple of months and combining those into a hypothesis of what the selling plan should look like moving forward, you at least have something you can operationalize pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's such a critical point you make is that you can't, you can't wait, right? I mean, it's, it's for instance, if you've got hiring plans and you think your plan has some element of hiring, you know, increasing staff on it, is you should be you know, building your pool of potential candidates now. Not waiting until the the right. CFO says, "Hey, let's go," because by then it'll be too late. Yeah, you're right, and I and I think that that is it's always easier to see that in hindsight. Like, I mean, six to eight months from now, we're going to look back and we're going to have case studies of companies that did it well and case studies of companies that didn't. It could very well that the, be that the companies that did it particularly well were those that were the most aggressive and took the most risk, and they just happened to be right. I think it's also those companies that, that maintained a level of readiness throughout the whole thing. I mean, I think the companies that thought they could really need to heavily cut in order to maintain themselves, yeah, they're going to have a harder time coming back. But the companies that said, look, you know, we're all going to pitch in. Hey, we're all going to take 20% pay cuts. We're going to maintain all of our sales staff and our customer success staff and our sales engineers or whatever. They're better prepared to come out of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's also a cultural issue there as well. I mean, this is a sort of big point with me when I see companies that, that because again, been through this many, many times, companies that are able to preserve as much as their capabilities, even though things are tough, they're taking a risk. But they also are saying, look, we're being looking forward. And this is part of our plan is so we're going to be ready to respond when the moment's right. Yeah. Well, I think that these aren't companies that are necessarily sitting on the sidelines either. No. Um, you know, I mean, there are some industries that are a bit at a standstill, but even those industries, there are buyers that see that, you know, even if it's a couple of years down the road, they have to be ready as well. So your buyers are doing the same calculus. The mm-hmm. buyers as well are saying, when do we need to accelerate through the curve? Right. And so it's you know, just like you know, six months ago when the market was humming along, you know, Gartner says three to 4% of your, of your addressable market is actively buying right now. And 46% of your market is poised, meaning they have a need, they should be doing something, but other priorities are in their way right now. Mm -hmm. So how do you find that three to 4%? Let's assume that like in a pandemic, it's two to 3%. Let's assume it's materially lower. That still means that there's a percent of your customers that are buying. They have a need. Like, what are you doing to identify them? What are you doing to identify them proactively based on attributes and characteristics of those type of companies that you see in the wild, see in the market? What are you doing with your sales reps to ask questions, to build value, to get the attention of your prospects, to listen for those buying signals that you hear from the prospects and members of the buying committee? We have not, we don't need to reinvent selling. We don't need to reinvent buying journeys now that we're coming out of a pandemic. But I do think the companies that are the most disciplined at managing those are likely going to be those that are more precisely and more predictably finding deals earlier in their rebound. Well, I think they're ones that train the sellers and enable the sellers to ask with the questions to ask to say, what are the what are the real pain points that need to be solved, right? That are strategically urgent, you know, aligned with our strategic initiatives, tactically urgent, that yeah, we're not going to we're not going to do a transformation project, but we are going to solve this smaller problem right now because we absolutely need to. And it's those require greater nuance in the way they go do the discovery to ask the extra question about yeah, what <laughs> what really needs to happen right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that and this is I mean, I know we're 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 talking mostly on the sales side here. This is an opportunity for your marketing counterparts also to step up and have this level of discipline. 
right? I mean, marketing doesn't need to be the glorified arts and crafts department and send over crappy, <laughs> crappy quote unquote marketing qualified leads. Right. You know, identifying customers that are in market, identifying prospects that have a need and have those characteristics and attributes. Marketing play just as strong a role at tightening up that discipline and being as smart about the economics of what you're willing to spend to acquire a customer based on their potential value for you. This is not, you know, we're no longer operating in a world where, especially for complex selling, marketing owns the top of the funnel and sales owns the bottom. The funnel is no longer split horizontally. It is split vertically with Mm -hmm. a diagonal bend. Right. Where marketing owns the majority of the work at the top of the funnel, sales may own the majority of the actions at the bottom. But make no mistake, at every stage, there is a role for both teams. And if they can drive that level of process and integration together, you will have better predictable pipelines and you will have more velocity with your prospects because they're seeing the right message at the right time and they understand what you want from them and what you're trying to say. So a question for you is, is this is more philosophical, but is, yeah, we're developing a lot of new tools to help us with, you know, intent data and predictive analytics and so on is, is it, <laughs> are sellers engaging at the right time? Yes and yes, but they're usually not engaging with the right content, right? So I think, you know, there's a lot of data out there that indicates that the typical buyer isn't reaching out to a seller until what, like 55, 58% of the buying process is completed. I think it was CEB that originally had this data, the stat that said of the buying process, like 55 or 58% of the of the buying process was completed before the buyer proactively reached out to sellers to learn about solutions. Mm. And, and so some people interpret that as, okay, the time I should start selling is at 58% into the buying process. And if you want to be a commodity, if you want to let the buyer define what's important, and right. you want to be considered just like a commodity with everyone else where it'll ultimately just come down to price, then by all means, wait until 58%. But if you engage with a prospect earlier in the process, when they don't even know what solutions exist, they may not even understand which problem it needs to be solved, but they are experiencing pain. Exactly. They're experiencing some problems. Like your job as a seller is to be an expert, not in your product at that point, but an expert in those problems. So I see many, many sellers engaging prospects at the early stages of the buying process but they're talking to them if, as if they're at the middle to the end. And if you're talking to a prospect about products before you've understood their problems, before they have committed to change, you are speaking to an audience that doesn't care what you're saying. You're speaking to an audience that you may actually end up pushing away because you come across as aggressive. So knowing what to say when based on where your prospect is in that journey is extremely important for both marketing and sales to do well. Well, I think there's this wide variance in the definition of what constitutes in market. And so, yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday and it was, you know, their definition was like somewhere between the decision and purchase stage. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, that's what's, yeah, isn't that a little late? Because to your point, is where the buyers, where you can be the, have the most impact initially, is helping the buyers identify the problem they're trying to solve. And, you know, this is the first job on Gartner's chart of the four that need to be solved by buyers or accomplished by buyers. It's like your influence is much bigger if you're engaging at that point than later to your point where you're just a commodity and you're competing on price. Well, and if we go back to the economics of how we sold beforehand, you know, you, you the way you do that might change. Like that that educational process for a smaller buyer may have to be 
virtual one-to-many forms. Yes, absolutely. It might have to be blog posts. It might have to be webinars. For those higher value prospects, you may be willing to go in and do a working session or a workshop or bring in your subject matter expert to do, you know, to do a sort of a a research presentation or to do an executive Mm -hmm. briefing or something that is about the issues so that they can customize a conversation about those issues in the town around the table so that they're telling you the problems they have. So they're basically giving you a roadmap of how to sell. You wouldn't do that for a customer that you can really only afford to sell to through e-commerce. Right. But understanding that economics, it doesn't change the nature of the message. It just changes the channel in which you're willing to use to get that message across. Right. Absolutely. All right. Fantastic stuff. Matt, unfortunately, we're running short of time, but but tell people how they can uh, connect with you and learn more about what you do. Well, you get on a plane and, and then you're to Seattle. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm just at um, HeinzMarketing.com, H-E-I-N-Z Marketing.com. Uh, I got 12 years worth of content up there, but sales marketing strategy, all B2B, all for free. So help yourself. Um, I'm on Twitter at Heinz Marketing. We're posting sales and marketing stuff up there all the time, including... Uh, from some guy by name Andy Paul who continues to publish good stuff and has been for years. And um, also, if you want to just reach me directly, I'm just Matt, M-A-T-T, at HeinzMarketing.com. Perfect. Matt, pleasure to talk to you as always. Uh, and maybe we'll run across each other this summer if you come down our way at the donut shop. I'm going to be, I'll be at VG's if you the need me. The world's best donuts, VG's in Cardiff, California. Cardiff by the sea. So, all right, Matt, as always, talk to you soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, Matt Hines, for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm -hmm.